The reading is from Colossians, page 1182. Colossians 1, 15 to 23. 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. This is the word of the Lord. Charles, thank you very much indeed. Uh, do please uh, keep your Bibles open at that page if you'd like to. Uh, that'd be wonderful. Just to say, um, as we begin, uh, that uh, this is nothing to do with Colossians 1, uh, but we do have um, some spaces at Itchin Kitchen on Wednesday. And so if you don't know about Itchin Kitchen, basically Naomi and I uh, host a meal every week on Wednesday at 7 o'clock. Uh, and we have uh, a couple of spaces for this coming Wednesday. If you'd like to come, it, there's, it's kind of, there's no agenda. We just eat, chat, and enjoy each other's company. Uh, so if you'd like to come to that, uh, either speak to me at the end, or you can just go straight to the church website and sign up there. It'd be lovely uh, to see you, uh, if, even if you've been before. It's continuing open house. We're going to look at this wonderful piece of scripture from Colossians chapter 1. It's fairly certain uh, that in those initial verses, uh, from verse 15 onwards, uh, Paul is either directly quoting or he's adapting a Christian hymn. Uh, it's a further reminder to us that the best Christian hymns combine deep, powerful words and hopefully appropriately stirring melodies. Certainly, this has the right tone, has the right feel for him, and it breaks down into uh, some nicely uh, constructed verses. And I think if you, we don't really have hymn books uh, anymore, they're kind of online collections of him, but if you looked up uh, this in the early Christian hymn book, it would be called something like the Supreme Jesus, because that's what's going on in uh, these wonderful verses. It's profound soaring celebration of who Jesus is, uh, which, of course, is about as good a subject for him uh, as any uh, I know. 
And it says various really important things about Jesus. Firstly, uh, that he is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is not someone who resembles God. He's not a a bland photocopy as as though he'd come to describe uh, God's physical experience as we were seeing in Genesis 1 last week. Rather, he is a perfect revelation of who God is, but in human form, in a form that we, as other human beings, can see and touch and smell. And this is important because many people and many religions carry a sense of the otherness, of the greatness of God. Uh, Of course, God is indeed other than us and majestic beyond our imagining. Paul argues in Romans 1 that we can indeed deduce things about God from the wonder and the majesty of creation. But we need more. We need much more. Otherwise, we'd be like a toddler left in a library uh, charged with explaining the theory of relativity. Uh, We wouldn't really know where to begin. But Jesus says in John, I and the Father are one, and anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So Paul is saying, firstly, that Jesus puts flesh and bones on the idea of an immortal, transcendent God, and that we as human beings need that. This is God accommodating himself to us so we can see him and understand him. Paul also says that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. Of course, we've been sort of getting little hints of this from Genesis 1. Jesus holding the old and the new worlds together. Creation was through him and for him. Creation and beauty are his workmanship. In contemporary terms, we might say Jesus is the operating system of the universe. But Paul goes on. He says Jesus is the head of the church. And he uses this image, head of the church, differently than he does elsewhere. He uses it in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12. And there, the church as a body is an image to emphasize that we work together that we are different limbs, different parts of this body, that we are one. Here, the emphasis is on the lordship of Jesus, that the the church is nothing without Jesus, just as a body is nothing without a head. Uh, In the French Revolution, as you may remember, they didn't say, Monsieur, would you be so good as to put your big toe in this little hole and then chop it off? Uh, You'd put your head in the hole for the guillotine, and off comes the head. The head's the thing, and not that I'd be willing to volunteer. Apparently, you can survive the loss of any major limb, but obviously not your head. seems a bit obvious and trite to say it until you realize how many individual Christians and churches have tried living without Christ as supreme Lord. It's important to see where all of this is heading. Jesus is the reconciler. The hymn could have ended, and isn't Jesus wonderfully mysterious and otherworldly? But Paul brings us down to earth with the incarnation and with the cross. Jesus, the agent of creation, also became the agent of salvation, the firstborn from the dead. He didn't come to earth to live in a big palace or to talk us all through the finer points of fjord-making or astrophysics. He came to speak our language, live among us, and then to take upon himself the very worst of human evil and greed and take away its sting 
and its consequences. So Paul gives us a beautiful, stirring, remarkably concise overview of Jesus. But it's not window dressing or fine words. There's a point to all of this. Paul ends this section, in a sense, by asking the question, who are we and what are we to do? Now, we could easily sit back after these soaring, inspiring words and be overwhelmed and overpowered. It would be like coming to an unfamiliar city and wandering, lost and confused, unsure of where we are. You need one of those nice, clear maps, you know, with a red arrow that says, you are here. How does this big story help us to fit in? As people, we read in verse 21, we are lost and alienated from God, if left to our own devices. Our minds, our hearts, our lives are hostile to God. And those around us near and far are the same. That's why we need to be reconciled. We read in verse 22 that we are put on an entirely new footing with God because of who Jesus is and what he has accomplished. We can know that deep sigh of relief and gratitude that we do not have to cower in fear or run from the presence of this holy and majestic God. We have been changed because of what Jesus has done. We've been brought in off the streets. We've been sat down at the royal palace, at the royal table. We've been welcomed into the temple and given a fresh set of clothes to wear. And just as there was an entirely logical link between who Jesus is and what he did for us, so Paul argues there should be a link between who we are as Christians and what we do. Who are we? We are forgiven and renewed sinners. Therefore, he says, we shouldn't treat our changed identity in Christ with indifference or see becoming a Christian as a one-off experience that simply becomes a stirring moment of a significant moment in the past. If that is the case, there are questions that we need to ask ourselves. Let me finish with two. The first question is this. Is Jesus the head of our church? Now, head has lots of meanings in English. Take this sentence for, uh, for example. The head scratched his head as he wiped the head off his pint of beer at his favorite head, at his favorite pub, the head of the river, as the referee called heads or tails at the start of the match. Lots of different ways we could say Jesus is the head of the church. Paul only has one in mind when he talks about Jesus. Jesus wants to remind the Colossian Christians of the simple truth that Jesus is supreme, that he was not an interesting figure in history who died an unusual death, but he was the second person in the Trinity, God in human flesh, the great reconciler. It is in Jesus alone that the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Now, we as human beings, we don't like really obedience and allegiance and giving honor in our democratic and cynical society. But the goal of our lives as Christians and as a local church is beautifully summarized in verse 18, so that, everything, so that in everything, in everything, he, Jesus, might have the su supremacy. In everything, he might have the supremacy. That is our goal in word, in song, in liturgy, in action. Our aim 
is to live lives as a church that proclaim the supremacy and the beauty and the wonder of Jesus Christ. My second question to you is, what makes your heart tick? So there's a question about us as a church, but what makes your heart tick? Paul helps us to see what it means to grow up as a Christian. He gives us some of the things that should characterize a Christian heartbeat. I wonder if we could listen in on your spiritual heartbeat. What would we hear? What would we conclude from listening to your deepest motivations and ambitions? We see what they are in verse 23. Our concern should be to continue in the faith, not to stand still or to look backwards. Our our ambition should be for our lives to be increasingly marked by the love and the mercy of God. Our concern should be to build on the solid foundation given in the apostolic gospel. That's our beginning. Those are the building blocks. That's what God has given us. Our concern should be the spread of the gospel, not just in our own community, but across the world, recognizing that what Jesus did is global. It's universal. It's not local. And in all of this, we see ourselves in a particular way. We are not princes or princesses or great people. There is only one head, and that is Jesus. Instead, we see ourselves as servants. These should be the things that occupy and transfix us as disciples of Jesus. Often they do, but often we settle for things that are more petty or more self-centered. The direction of travel for a maturing Christian is to learn and to put into practice the supremacy of Jesus. It is facing down the temptation that will come to all of us to swap out the wonder of Jesus Christ, King of all, who proved his kingship on a cross The temptation comes at times to swap that out for other things, for diverting trivialities, for fads, for image, for the glory of the church as opposed to the glory of Jesus. But when you think about it, the Christians we most admire are those morally and intellectually and in the public square or within the life of the church who have stayed true, stayed firm, who are thinking and praying and acting in ways that are more and more and more honoring to Christ. They've given of their best in thought, in worship, in forging their characters by the power of the Spirit to make the declaration that Jesus is Lord, to make it not an empty slogan or something that you see on the car bumper sticker, but rather to say Jesus is Lord is a heartfelt celebration of the love of God made real in Jesus. We've seen it in other people. Let's live it ourselves, dear friends. Amen.